Well, good morning to you. It's uh, such a joy to be back here again after last year and uh, to see some familiar faces and to see many new ones. I am so aware not only of the beauty of the setting, but also the incredible rich spiritual heritage of this place. Um, my wife and I pastor a church that plants churches in uh, Southern California called Southlands, and I also work with an organization called City to City that plants and strengthens churches around the world. And my good friend Larry Acosta, who directs that work, was chatting to me last week, and I told him we were going to Hume Lake, and he said, man, I came to Hume Lake 40 years ago as a kid from urban LA, and I became a Christian, and I received a call to ministry. And 40 years later, uh, there's such fruit. And, yeah. And uh, so moving just to hear time and time again of God meeting with his people here. And I know about two-thirds of the room is uh, spent and pretty glazed over in week eight. And I'm really trusting that as I teach this morning that God through his word would refresh you, give you a second wind for the last couple of weeks, but that every single one of us, that he would meet us, that he would, his spirit would fly behind the preaching of the gospel, amen. So to introduce my series for the week, I'm gonna be teaching on the gospel in Genesis. And I'm gonna actually kick that off this morning in Genesis 2. And I think very often when we think of the book of Genesis, we, we think of the how of creation. And there are some brilliant minds that help us to give reasons for why we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And we do believe that. That nothing was created that God did not create. That God spoke what was not into what was. That he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. That God's word has intrinsic creative power. If you and I want to write a song or bake a cake, we say, I'm going to bake a cake, and then we've got to go and do it. When God says it, that word has intrinsic creative power. That's what we see in the book of Genesis. And it's an amazing thing. God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. But the how has a lot of mystery to it. And I will actually leave that to the clever people. Uh, I've studied that, but actually that's not my greatest interest. I'm so thankful for apologists who delve into the day-age theory and the old earth and the young earth and all of that stuff. Ultimately, as Christians, we believe by faith that God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. But particularly today and this week, I want to lean into the why of creation and the who of creation. That in Genesis, God is self-disclosing. He is dis disclosing his character and his nature and he is disclosing his purpose for you and I. The who and the why of creation. Some of you are going, what is that weird accent? Uh, is it Australian? No, it's not. Is it British? No, it's not. It's South African. It makes me sound smarter than I really am. <laughs> but we've lived here for 16 years. Uh, America's our home. We're so, so grateful, but we grew up in South Africa. And as a child growing up in a Christian home, I, was, I became fascinated not just with the how of creation, but, but the why. Why am I here 
any of you with young kids will know so many of their questions are why questions, and that's really good questions to ask. Why are we here? And the world is asking those questions and often can't give an answer. Interestingly, Billie Eilish, her new single is, what am I made for? What am I made for? They're asking the question, why? Jacob Collier, one of my favorite musicians, British jazz musician, I was watching a post-concert conversation with his fans on the streets of Barcelona. And they were asking him about music. And then in the midst of it, a fan asked, but Jacob, why are we alive? And he just said, there is no reason. The purpose of life is just to be curious and be open, but there is no reason. How sad, how sad. The German theologian Helmut Thielek said that all of us are born like actors on a stage. And we're born with a great sense of confusion and consternation as to who's the playwright? Do we have a role in this place? Do we have lines of meaning? Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? And he said that all of us live in this state of confusion until we read the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, the playwright introduces himself. And we find that we come from God and we are made for God. We are introduced to the heroes and the villain. We're actually introduced to the great hero of Scripture in Genesis. We get a glimpse of Jesus in Genesis, the great hero. And we find that all of us have a meaningful role to play in this drama of life. And so I'm going to read Genesis 2, 1 to 17, and then 3, 1 to 4. Won't you follow along in your Bibles or on your phone? And I'm reading from the ESV, the why of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in East Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Genesis 3, 1 to 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> the why of creation. Why are we here? <clears throat> and I want to help us to see that in the second account of creation, that God is showing us one of our primary whys, and that is that he wants to dwell with us. Why are we created? Because God wants to dwell with us. There is more than that, but certainly that's what we see. And God has a stunning way of convincing us that our why, our first why, is that he wants to dwell with us. And that is that we see, and I'm going to lean quite heavily on a man called G.K. Beale for the first point. We see that the Garden of Eden was actually the first temple in Scripture. It was actually the first temple in Scripture. The word Eden means delightful. And so it's this region, and we know that it is between these four rivers. Two of them are still known today. The other two are not known. Some clever people say, we don't know where it is at all because the flood would have covered over everything. Other people would have said, no, it's some region oasis near Iraq. But be that as it may, we've got to ask, what was God creating when he created Eden? This delightful place, and in the midst of this large delightful place, there is a garden in the midst of it. And so we hear that God creates Adam outside of the garden in Eden, and then he places him inside in this garden to work and to keep it. What was he doing? God was creating the first temple. And how do we know this? Well, firstly, remember that the author of Genesis is Moses. And Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so the Israelites, the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. And we have to actually translate it through how would the hearers have heard it. And so there would have been a mix of imagery between garden imagery and tabernacle imagery. The tabernacle was this tent-like temple that God gave very strong, clear directions for Moses to, to set up. And you see some incredible parallels. G.K. Beale gives us four. Stay with me for a while. We're going to put on our thinking caps. Is that all right? And then we're going to go down to the heart. Is that okay? Why was the Garden of Eden the first temple? Well, firstly, we see that God actually creates Eden 
after the Sabbath. So there's this Sabbath day where the deity comes to rest in the temple. And Beale says that both garden and temple were the place of God's special presence. We know that in the Garden of Eden, God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There's this beautiful sense of every day they have an appointment with him. God is not this distant uncle that only visits at Thanksgiving. He comes and he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God also doesn't like 100 degree temperature. <laughs> cool of the day. And this word walk is the word mythilic, and it's the exact same word that Moses uses where God says he, was, he will dwell with his people in the tabernacle. In Numbers, Leviticus, sorry, 26 verse 11, God says in the building of the tabernacle, I will dwell with you, I will mythilic with you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my, my people. So both tabernacle and garden are the place of God's special presence. Secondly, Adam and Eve were given priestly duties in the garden. They were, verse 15 of chapter 2, to guard and to keep it. To guard and to keep it. And that word is shamar, to guard and to keep it. And that's the exact same duties that God gives the priests in the tabernacle, to guard and to keep it. And that word, to guard, is not just guard. It's actually the word yada, which means worship. In other words, Adam and Eve were not just gardeners. They were gardeners. They were like priests in the first temple. Adam was not just a gardener. He was a worship leader. A worship leader without skinny jeans. A worship leader without any jeans, actually. <laughs> worship leaders don't try that. But we see this... We see this parallel, the exact same words, to guard and to keep it, were used for the priests, to guard and to keep the temple. So that's the second reason. Third reason, that temples always put an image of their deity right in the center. And what we see is Adam is created outside of the Garden of Eden, and then he is put inside. And then Eve is created inside. And we know in the Genesis 1 account of creation, God says, let us make man, male and female, in our, in the image of God, he created them. In other words, pagan temples would have a statue, an idol of their deity. God's idol image was man. So much so that when Solomon's temple was destroyed in AD 70, the, the pagans called the Jewish people non-religious because they said, where is the image of your God? To which the Jewish people said, we are the image of our God. Isn't that amazing? If, if the church grabbed a hold of the truth that you and I are image bearers of God, Adam and Eve were image bearers put in the center of the temple and then fourthly and finally, the, the Jewish temple was meant to remind Israel of Eden's brilliance. So if you see in the instructions in both tabernacle and temple, there's all this Eden imagery. You get the tree of life. 
You get carvings of flowers and palm trees and pomegranates and a gold menorah-shaped lamp representing the, the tree of life. You even have cherubim. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the garden and a cherubim with a flaming sword guarded the garden. Well, in the tabernacle and temple, there are these cherubim sewn into the curtains with flaming swords. It's a little bit like when someone comes to Hume Lake and they get the Hume Lake hoodie and the Hume Lake flask and they go home and every time they take a sip of coffee, they go, oh man, I, this is a memento of when I was in a beautiful place. The tabernacle and the temple were full of Eden mementos, reminding God's people as they worshiped him in a tent and in a temple that God wants to dwell with you like he dwelled with Adam and Eve. So the Jewish temple was meant to remind us of Eden's brilliance. Okay, what does this mean though? What does this mean? I think so often in our humanist culture, we have the sense of if I can go to the most beautiful place on earth, then I'm gonna find peace and I'm gonna find meaning. And so people spend thousands and thousands of dollars and we love to travel. But let me tell you, we can be in very beautiful places and find very empty, confused people, amen? The message of the creation is not just that Eden was delightful and beautiful, it was that God dwelt there. And that ultimately, our meaning is not just to find the most beautiful place on earth, it is to find God in beauty. And whether you're serving at a camp or whether you're coming to enjoy this absolutely stunning scenery, let's enjoy it, but let's realize ultimately the most beautiful place on earth is still a signpost pointing towards the dwelling God. I'm a paddleboarder, and I love to paddle, paddleboard in SoCal. A couple months ago, there was a paddleboarder out at Dana Point who, who had a GoPro, and he found a blue whale. And he followed this blue whale with the GoPro for about an hour. And there were many hits on YouTube. And all he did as he followed it was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And after about 20 minutes, I was so annoyed. I just wanted to go, man, imagine if blue whales could speak. What would this blue whale, majestic blue whale, say to this paddleboarder just saying, oh my God. Oh my God, oh my God. I think he would say, well, well is he? I, I mean, is he your God? Because if you think I am majestic, if you think I am powerful and amazing, you should see the God that I'm pointing to. I am just a signpost pointing to a glorious God who wants to dwell with you, who made every way to dwell with you. So is he? the first big idea, that God is creating a temple in the garden to show that our biggest why is to dwell with God. Second big idea, we find that we are exiled from the presence of God because of rebellion. 
But God made a way to dwell with us again. God made a way to dwell with us again. So Adam and Eve, they were like these priests working and keeping the garden. They were ministering to God. He was dwelling with them. But instead of doing it under God's loving rule, they were tempted by Satan, tempted by the crafty serpent. And he came and he asked them the question, did God really say you shall not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what the serpent essentially was doing with Adam and Eve is what he does time and time and time again with us, is that he convinces us that God's boundaries, God's laws, are to kill our joy, are to crush our freedom. And isn't it amazing that God can put us in a beautiful place with beautiful people and beautiful opportunities but we have this sense of about that one tree that is off limits, if I could only have that one tree. No matter how good we've got it, we always want that one tree. And that works out financially, it works out sexually, it works out in terms of our bodies, our workplace. There's this built-in discontentment about that one tree. And we do not see God's good limits as good. We see them as crushing our freedom. If you go to that lake and a bass jumps out of the lake because it's so tired of the limits of the lake and I want to explore my freedom on the bank. That fish is going to die. What we see in the book of Genesis is that God's limits are good because he knows us. And to live with that within those limits is not to kill our joy, it's actually for our thriving and our joy. But Adam and Eve and every priest afterwards, instead of trusting that God's limits were good, they reached for what was not rightfully theirs. And every time there was death, and there was separation from God. Sin separates us from God. So Adam and Eve were placed outside of the garden. They were exiled. And you find it with the tabernacle too. The priests, instead of obeying God's good limits, they reached. They reached for wealth. They reached for foreign gods. They reached into sexual immorality. They worshiped idols. They took on the value of pagan nations. And in both tabernacle and temple, it resulted in an exile, a separation because of our rebellion. And you go, oh God, who is going to break this vicious cycle of God dwelling graciously with his people and then us rebelling and being separated? Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. And Jesus came, book of Hebrews says, as the second Adam. And Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The beautiful word is that word, dwell, is the word tabernacle. In other words, John is picking up on this beautiful theme that this is the tabernacling, dwelling 
God. And this time, this priest, this Adam, would also be tempted by the serpent, but this time he would trust God, trust in God's good limits, and he would resist the serpent. Isn't it fascinating that Satan also came to tempt Jesus about a tree? Second Adam, about that tree. You don't have to die on that tree. And the first Adam fell into temptation about that tree. The second Adam obeyed and resisted temptation about the tree. And he said, no, I will. I will willingly die on the cross, on the tree. I, the one who lived the life that we could not live, I will die the death that we should have died in their place so that exiled sons and daughters, rebels, could be reconciled to God in the garden. There's this beautiful little piece in the book of Mark where Jesus hanging on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus, who had no reason to be exiled for the presence of God, from the presence of God, was willingly exiled as a substitute. And it says, as he cries out, it is finished. It's paid in full. It says, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know what was in those temple curtains? Sewn into the temple curtains were the cherubim. And it's like God dramatically saying, cherubim, you who kept people out from my presence, you're fired. Get out of here. And you go, oh, the gospel is just amazing. That Jesus as a substitute was exiled, that we might go through the cherubim into the presence of God, not by our deserving, not by our earning, but by grace. John Stott says about this, he says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claim, claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God claims penalties that belong to man alone. That is the gospel, that God claims the penalty that belong to us and gives us the presence of God. So what, what should we do? What should we do where we see this amazing second Adam who is exiled that we might go in? told this story before, maybe even on this platform, but I grew up playing rugby and, and cricket, and I came to the States and thought, I need to learn an American sport. And so our, our church was doing softball. I was like, softball doesn't sound very manly, but let me try. Anyway, I took up softball and kind of did this thing, you know, it wasn't very good, and our, our team wasn't very good. And every time one of us would like, strike out or drop the ball, the guy would say, my bad. And the team would say, you're good. And after this happened, after a few weeks, I was like, what is this my bad and you're good? So I went to the team captain and says, why is the guy saying my bad every time he drops the ball? And why is the team saying you're good? He says, well, my bad is essentially saying, this was my fault. I'm not blaming anyone else, it was my fault. Okay. But then why is the team saying you're good? Because he's not good. He's just said he's bad. <laughs> he says, no, no, no. When they say you're good, 
They're not saying you're good. They're saying you're forgiven. It's good. We'll put it past us and let's play. I said, bro, that is the gospel. <laughs> that is the gospel. When we actually own our own rebellion, we stop blaming and shaming others, and we say, my bad. And God turns to us and says, you're good. But when he says you're good, he's not actually saying you're good. He's saying, it's good. Because of the perfect goodness of my son, you will receive his righteousness, and he will receive your unrighteousness. That is the gospel. And I want to encourage those of you, perhaps you've grown up in Christian homes and heard about Genesis, etc. but receiving the gospel is simply saying, my bad, and I am putting my faith in the one who is perfectly good, Jesus, and I'm receiving his goodness, his righteousness. What else does this mean for us? Well, it means that through the life of Israel and the life of Moses, that the dwelling presence of God is not just a one-off, but it is progressive. God wants to reveal himself as a dwelling place God with you in progressive ways by his word and by his spirit. And one of the things that I find amazing about Moses is that he saw God dwell with his people in such powerful ways. Think about the Passover. Think about the plagues. Think about the opening of the Red Sea. Think about the giving of the tablets. And yet in Exodus 33, he says, God, show me your glory. And I just want to say, Moses, you are so discontent. I mean, I would love one-tenth of the presence of God that you saw. And yet there was this Holy discontentment in Moses where he says in Exodus 33, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up out of here for what else will distinguish us from all the people on the face of the earth except your presence. In other words, Moses was saying, I'm so thankful for the Passover. Passover is a glimpse of the gospel. I'm so thankful for the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a glimpse of the resurrection. I'm so thankful for the giving of the law. But Lord, there is more. And I want to say those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ, how he draws us close, how he begins to change, I just want to say, thanks, Captain Obvious, but there is more. There is more. Don't settle. Be thankful for what he's done. But there is more. I've been walking with Jesus since I was 13. And I want to say, man, there is so much more than 51. In my first pastorate in South Africa, I used to go to the pastor's fraternals. And they were great, great places, good brothers. But we used to pray. And the prayers used to go something like that, like this. The charismatics and the Pentecostals would say things like, Lord, send your presence. Lord, send revival. We need your spirit. Why don't you pour it out on us? And I'll be going, yes, 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 yes. And the Methodists and the Baptists, of which I was one, would say, oh Lord, thank you that we have your presence. Thank you that we have your spirit. Thank you that you live inside of us. And I would just say, guys, these are two sides of the same coin. 
Because there is this reality that the Spirit of God dwells inside us. There is this reality that as far as, our, as the east is from the west, God has taken our sin from us. He has saved us. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And yet this desire for more is a godly desire. Amen? God doesn't want to say, oh, back in 72, God met me. Absolutely, thank you. But actually, what is the current testimony of God's indwelling presence? And is there a hunger? And is there a thirst? I loved singing the song, I see a near revival stirring and as we pray and seek and speaking to some of your staff in the green room before, just say, man, this summer God is up to something. There's a snap and a crackle and a pop. Let's be on the edge of our seat saying, thank you for what you did, but we're not resting on our laurels. There is more. Amen. Let me land with this. It's a fascinating thing that Jesus in his resurrection, when he said, I will build my church, and he gathered his disciples, and he gave them a great commission, poured out his spirit, he did not talk about a physical temple at all. In fact, the early church, although they stayed in Jerusalem for a time, after Pentecost, there was the scattering in Acts 8. And they took the gospel wherever they were scattered. And the apostle Paul, in Ephesians 2 verse 20, said this, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells by his spirit. Isn't that amazing? So you see this progression of garden to tent to bricks and mortar tabernacle to the people of God scattered across the earth, bringing the presence of God wherever they go. Aren't you so grateful that the early church didn't stay in Jerusalem because we have to be near the temple? Well, in AD 70, that thing was finished. Thank goodness that they realized the, the church is God's temple, sons and daughters carrying the presence of God. I want to land with this, I think, stunning, stunning truth that God's presence, His dwelling presence, empowers us to cultivate life wherever He places us, wherever He scatters us. I've got about five more minutes, and I just want us to see this because I'd never seen it. It's hidden in plain sight. But growing up, when I thought about the Garden of Eden, I thought about this very lush kind of Amazon jungle. But if you see the progression of the planting of the, of the Garden of Eden, it says in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Track with me, please. We've got a couple minutes left. You doing all right? Yeah. Track with me because I imagined Adam being created and then planted in this lush garden of Eden that was like an Amazon jungle and tending that. But apparently not. God says there was no bush of the field and no, not even a small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had planted 
a garden in Eden. And then it says, and the Lord God put the man there. And God made, verse 9, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. See the progression. God plants a garden in Eden. God creates Adam. God puts Adam not in an Amazon jungle, but in a dust bowl planted with Eden potential. And he sends a mist. And because the man is there to work the ground, the Lord God causes every tree and shrub of the field. Have you seen that before? It's amazing when we see it. What does it mean? It means God is in the business of putting his temple, his priests, his presence bearers in dust bowls planted with Eden potential. And when he puts us there and we willingly cultivate the ground that doesn't look very Amazonish, God causes life to spring up. And that's the story of the gospel. That God comes and dwells with his people by his spirit through the death of Jesus and then says, now go into dust bowls, be scattered into difficult places. And when you're willing to go there, those places are planted with Eden potential and I will cause life to spring up. Let me just say one word as we land about California. California feels like a dust bowl to many Christians. And that's why we want to go to Idaho. <laughs> and I'm not saying you're sinning if you go to Idaho, but maybe you are. At least ask God, God, am I running from a dust bowl that's planted with Eden potential? And I want to say, beloved, God has always used his people in seemingly dry and arid places to say, my presence will empower you to cultivate life. We all leave and go to Idaho. Where's Adam and Eve? I want to say sometimes the dust bowl is not a place, it's people. Who is your dust bowl? Larry Acosta, my friend, arrived here as a 13-year-old dust bowl. And someone sowed into him, and someone loved him, someone prayed with him. And 40 years later, there is Garden of Eden all over that man. And I want to say, you volunteers and leaders and servants, keep on sowing into dust bowls. People that don't look like they've got great potential, but actually, the gospel and the presence of God is enough. Amen? Let's be a people. Who's your dust bowl at home, in your family? Is your dust bowl at work, at school, at college? That person, that place is just like, oh my gosh, that is hard ground. That is dry ground. The Lord God wants to put you there and he will send his mist. You plant his word. And let's realize Eden potential in dust bowls. Amen. This is our why, beloved. That God wants to dwell with us. And God wants to send us to cultivate dust bowls of Eden for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are the second Adam. That you were not tempted by the serpent. That you withstood your ground. And you said about that tree, 
I will die the death that they deserve so that exiled rebels could be reconciled to God's dwelling presence. We thank you for that. And we receive that. We say, Lord, my bad. We are prone to wonder, as that hymn says. Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. But here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So we receive your indwelling presence by your grace. Holy Spirit, come and refresh every worker here. Holy Spirit, come and fill every temple here. And won't you empower us to be commissioned to cultivate dust bowls planted with Eden potential. And everyone said,